What's up, sports fans? It's time for Let Me Speak. I'm Joe Braverman, and on this show, we discuss the big news in the world of sports as heard from me, myself, and I. Here's what we'll be talking about this week. The teams to keep an eye on as NFL training camps get underway. Plus, how does the MLB change with a new team atop the AL East? And, breaking down the MLS debut of Lionel Messi. You're listening to episode 83 of Let Me Speak. Let's get things started. It's intro time. Let me speak. What's happening, y'all? Coming to you on Monday, July 24, 2023. You are listening, as the intro said, to episode number 83 of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in wherever you are getting this podcast. This is episode three of the Return Podcast. Of course, if you missed it a couple of weeks ago, we were off for about a year, but now we're back, we're up and running, and we're back into the podcast flow. Now, if you do hear a little bit of noise in the background, we've got a fan going, obviously, because it is hot, and we are deep into the summer months. The calendar is going to turn to August, where those 80s are going to turn into 85s and turn into 90s, and that humidity is just going to kick up and up and up and up and up. So we have to keep ourselves as cool as possible. You don't want to see me with a bunch of sweat marks, whatever. Or if you're a female and you're listening to us, I'll sweat a little bit more. (laughs) Uh, But that's beside the point uh, here in Swampscott, Massachusetts. Uh, We are actually getting very excited. Speaking of, as the calendar turns to August, it also means that football season is that much closer to starting. And I am so, so excited for this. Not just because it's been kind of a slow news day or a slow news time at WEEI and basically in the sports world in general. But it's just you get that feeling whenever football season is around the corner that it's just so it it, it makes you feel good, you know, because it's it's different from if we got baseball going on and then when hockey and basketball get going, because that's sort of like a daily thing or an everyday kind of thing. With football, it's just a once a week. You can set your plans whether you're going out to a bar, sitting on the couch, and enjoy some football. It's just a very fun time uh, once football season gets underway. And it's even closer, you know, because I was looking at the schedule, and it's like, okay, training camps are here. That's kind of good. But the Hall of Fame game, which, granted, is just a preseason game, but it's still, it's football action. It's game action. It's very exciting. It's only a week from Thursday. And I might just even put it on in the background just so I can – uh, have something to watch for and get myself back into that football mindset. But of course, you have to stay in that football mindset when you're covering sports. And really, there are a ton of headlines, I think, into training camp. And there are a couple that I've really noticed on that I wanted to pay attention to. And I think the general one that's you know become uh, to light in the past week or so has been the deal with the running backs. And we found out this weekend that there were a bunch of running backs that got together on a Zoom call to try and discuss what's going on. Obviously, the big ones dealing with the contracts are Saquon Barkley and Josh Jacobs, but you also have Derrick Henry, Tony Pollard, uh, Jonathan Taylor, Christian McCaffrey, Nick Chubb, Najee Harris, Aaron Jones, Joe Mixon, and J.K. Dobbins. Those were the names that were on that Zoom call. 
And honestly, you know, I, I've read the details uh, from, you know, Dove Kleiman, Adam Schefter, Ian Rappaport, and there were a lot of quotes like Nick Chubb was basically saying like he was towing the fence that like, it's just a tough scenario. Um, and, and I agree. It is a really tough situation because that's kind of what the running back room is, you know, in, in today's NFL, no GMs are going to take a chance. You know, they're only going to have like a, I talked about it last week. They're only going to have maybe like a five year window with uh, some of these running backs. Um, and really these guys are just trying to come together for the job security. Cause really you think about it, a, a running back career in today's NFL is only maybe five or six years. I mean, look at Zeke Elliott when he was drafted in 2016 and uh, now he's out of the league and it's been seven years, but even then you'd call him uh, a veteran pretty much. So I think it's just trying to figure out, and I'm sure, you know, there's going to be some common ground that maybe the NFL and the Players Association come with in terms of running backs, you know, maybe more security or whatever. Maybe it comes to a point where running backs contracts are guaranteed, um, you know, depending on whatever kind of money amount you want. I, I don't know, but I think that's, that's sort of a situation that's going to take years to figure out. I don't think it's just going to get changed, you know, in a week or so. I'm sure... Uh, you know, Saquon might be this revolutionary guy who's going to hold out the entire time. But I will say, at least for the Giants and the Raiders, because I don't think really any other teams are going to have an issue. I think these guys, uh, for the moment, are on good contracts. Maybe not great contracts, but they're on good contracts. Um, I think specifically the Giants and the Raiders, because Saquon and Josh Jacobs are holding out. Those are the two teams that I think should be concerned because they might be, you know, maybe not directly talking to each other, but they sort of have this mutual agreement of like, we're going to fight for this. We're going to fight for our contracts and that kind of money. Um, so that those are the headline. That's one headline I'm looking at, obviously from a general standpoint, but I don't think it's as bad as what the Kansas city chiefs might be going into. Now you might look at the chiefs and be like, wait a minute, they won a super bowl. They won the, they won it last year. They have the best football player on planet earth in Patrick Mahomes. What could be the issue? Well, the issue is on the defensive side in their quest to repeat, and that's Chris Jones. Chris Jones is not at uh, training camp, and he's been holding out basically ever since. Uh, he's in the middle, or he's on the final year, I should say, of a four-year, $80 million contract. He's making $20 million this year, and basically what he's asking for is uh, to be one of the top two uh, defensive players salary-wise uh, per, per year in the NFL, you know, and that number is about 30 million, I want to say. And I'm trying to look at both sides of this. For for Chris Jones, I can see it because he was third in defensive player of the year voting last year. And you look statistically, Chris Jones was the guy who was keeping Kansas City's defense relevant. I mean, they were second last year in team sacks, only to the team that they beat, the Eagles. They had 55, but you got to remember, 15 and a half of those 55 sacks were from Chris Jones himself. I mean, you go down the rest of the roster. The next guy is at six. Then you've got five from Frank Clark, who isn't there anymore. So, you know, this has been the situation, at least for me, from Kansas City's side that uh, I've seen for a long time, is that their defense is what's going to hold them back. Because as we all know, the slogan goes, 
defense wins championships. And, you know, regardless of how many rules get changed and how many offenses become more elite, it's all about what you can do defensively. And honestly, this has been a Chiefs team that's basically been mid-pack in almost every defensive category um, outside of sacks. They had a minus three turnover differential. So really, when you take Chris Jones out of that lineup, you don't really have many guys on that Chiefs defense where you might be actually scared or a little bit feared on them. Now, they have a couple of good linebackers, but their secondary still is a little bit iffy. I mean, Kansas City is going to win some regular season games, definitely because of their offense, because of Mahomes and Travis Kelsey working that magic. Uh, Those two guys are going to win the Chiefs some games. Now, I'm not saying because Chris Jones might not show up at camp or he might miss a game and hold out and all this stuff that they're totally going to crap the bed. They're not going to do that at all. I still predict them to win the division. I still predict them to be in the top three in the AFC. But in terms of a deep postseason run, I am a little bit skeptical if Chris Jones is going to miss any time. And reports from Adam Schefter are saying that the Chiefs and Jones are still far apart on any kind of extension talks. So I don't know. Chris Jones, you know, watch out because Chris Jones is not a household name when you think of the Kansas City Chiefs. Really, when you think of them, you think of the quarterback Mahomes. You think of Kelsey, the best tight end in football right now. And you have Andy Reid, who's knocking on the door of one of the best coaches of all time. Arguably, you could say the best coach in the league right now. um, But Chris Jones is going to be that guy on the list where, you know, there's always a couple of guys um, when you look at any sport. You know, those role players um, that once they are out of the lineup or they're sitting on the bench becomes an issue. So I think this is going to be an issue for Kansas City if Chris Jones is not taking the field. And even if he does take the field, if he doesn't get any kind of extension, what's his mindset going to be? Is he not even going to try? Is he not going to dedicate himself as much? You know, is he going to hold back on uh, the pass rush or anything like that? Because let's put it like this the AFC is incredibly tough, incredibly tough. So if you don't even have a defense that's, you know, mid-pack is basically um, 15, 16, 17, I think that they've got to be above mid-pack. I don't think they have to be top 10, but but they've got to be flirting with the top 10 because as much as Mahomes and what that offense for the Chiefs can give you, they can't win every single game. Okay, you can't get into 45, 40 shootouts every single week. So if you're asking me, Chris Jones needs to get on the field for Kansas City. And if he's missing any kind of time for any kind of camp, then that is going to be an issue. It's going to be an issue for Kansas City. And hopefully it does not bite them in the butt. But sticking in the AFC, I think obviously the big trade in the offseason was Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers, multiple time MVP, former champ. It's been basically three or four years in the making. He's gone off the Packers. He's on the New York Jets, which I will be honest, was a little sad not being on that podcast for that time because I would have had a slew of takes for Aaron Rodgers. Um, But really, I'm just looking at the Jets and the Packers on those two things. First off for the Jets, you know, seeing the first couple of videos from camp, everything looks seamless right now, at least for the Jets on offense. And arguably... I think this could be the deepest uh, receiving room uh, in the NFL. I mean, you have Garrett Wilson, the rookie of the year, 
And then you bring over uh, Alan Lazard from Green Bay. So you already know he and Rodgers has that connection. You sign Miko Harmon. Oh, and you still have Corey Davis, who is not going to get a ton of snaps, but still can be a weapon all of a sudden. And I mean, we talked about it uh, on Sunday with uh, Nick Spitzy Stevens and our newest WEEI talent, John Lyons, that. The Jets are legit. You know, some people around New England or fans of the Patriots might not want to hear it, but this is a Jets team that is very, very talented. They look deep. I mean, defensively last year, they were great because obviously they have the defensive-minded coach in Robert Sala. And you obviously have Sauce Gardner, who's the defensive rookie of the year. He looks to be uh, only getting better in year two. And then you've got a tremendous offensive line. You have a deep running back room as well. You got to remember, Brees Hall is coming off an injury, but look at what happened. Uh, who replaced him? Yeah, Michael Carter's, Michael Carter, sorry, Zonovan Knight. They've got a really good offense. And I think when we're talking about expectations, the Jets brought in Aaron Rodgers to get them out of the basement and not to continuously be this joke. Because really, the only recent memory that the Jets have had is getting to the AFC Championship two years in a row. And you know who was the quarterback of that team? Mark freaking Sanchez, okay? So if you're telling me that Mark Sanchez was the best quarterback that the Jets have had in the 21st century, that's laughable. Absolutely laughable. So you bring in Aaron Rodgers to put some respect on the Jets' name because really the Jets have just been a laughing stock, one of the laughing stocks uh, in recent time uh, in the entire NFL. So you bring in Aaron Rodgers, you put some credibility on New York's name, and really missing the playoffs would be a disappointment because what the Jets did was they looked at Aaron Rodgers last year and they saw him have a down year. And they say it's a fluke. They're saying that it was only one year. Maybe Aaron Rodgers was not dedicated uh, as he should have been. But now you bring him in, you Look at the the videos, the throws he's making to Garrett Wilson, and just the way the offense, as I said, seamlessly looks. You're banking on that to make a playoff run, okay? Would I pick them to win the Super Bowl? No. But I think if they miss the playoffs, and I understand how deep the AFC is. I just mentioned how deep it is. If they miss the playoffs with all they've invested, then it would be a giant disappointment. And... Who knows if this is just a one-year deal, if they're just swinging for the fences for this one year just because they were they kind of have to. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like a wait and see for the Jets. You know, I, I would say the East is one of the toughest divisions out there, which we'll get into in just a little bit. But I think the Jets have a lot of expectations, and rightfully so. If they're making a trade for a future first ballot Hall of Famer and Aaron Rodgers, they have to have those expectations on them. Now, on the other side for that trade, in Green Bay, we now know that this is Jordan Love's team. This was when he was drafted in 2018. He was going to be the successor. We know that was the plan for Green Bay. Jordan Love was going to succeed Aaron Rodgers. And now, years later, the time is now. So the question is, is he worth the investment? Now, roster-wise... Even with Aaron Rodgers struggling, I think the roster last year was really good. And they brought back a lot of the same pieces, like uh, Devondre Campbell. Um, and they still have a great secondary in Jair Alexander. Um, 
you know, I think for Jordan Love, at least, the defense and the running backs are going to benefit him. You've got a tremendous two-back tandem in Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon. Um, I mentioned the defense. I think they can be fringe playoff contenders. But really, the only thing I'm concerned about is how good is Jordan Love and what do they have for receivers? Because really, you know, off the top of my head, Christian Watson and Romeo Dobbs. Watson, later on in the year, really came around with Aaron Rodgers, and Rodgers was trusting him a little bit more. Does he have that same trust with Jordan Love? I'm sure that the organization has that trust in him. Um, but the question is, can Jordan Love make those throws to him? Same thing with Romeo Dobbs. Obviously, he struggled. Rodgers was giving him chance after chance after chance, and Dobbs just could not cash in. Now, year two, will it be better? I don't know. But really, um, just the offense is the big question because I think defensively they are good. And, you know, it is a tough division. You have the Lions on the up and up, and you have the Vikings who obviously won the division last year and were the number two seed uh, in that NFC. So I think it's not – the NFC is not as deep as the AFC. So I think the Packers, if Jordan Love can be what Green Bay hopes he can be, then they can be fringe playoff contenders because honestly – Looking at the standings uh, from last year, there's not a lot of teams I trust to have a repeat performance. I don't know if the Seahawks uh, are going to continue to shock people. I don't know if the Giants are going to be able to bounce back. Um, there are just a few teams that I have questions on. Obviously, the, the Buccaneers are going to take a step back. There are a couple teams in that playoff picture where I'm concerned that they're not going to make it back there. So for Green Bay, everything relies on Jordan Love. Simple as that. If Love stinks, they're not going to be good. If he's great, then they're going to be a good team. So that's how I see it with Green Bay. But I'm very curious to see how the Jets and the Packers outperform each other, if one can outperform the other. And then that can give you an early sign of how good was the trade, how good was uh, Green Bay unloading Rodgers. Um, but one other headline that I think really should be paid attention to, speaking of the AFC East, is Buffalo. Because you have to wonder, are things okay? Because let's face it, the Josh Allen era has been filled with high expectations, but not able to capitalize. And we know how dedicated Bill's Mafia is. And we saw it at the end of the uh, divisional round against Cincinnati at home. Stefan Diggs outwardly saying, or didn't outwardly say it, but you saw it on the sidelines uh, with those CBS cameras putting his arms out at Josh Allen being like, come on, come on, come on. And we saw on Twitter during the offseason before Elon Musk became uh, a crap hole for that Twitter. Stefan Diggs was ranting about uh, just not getting the opportunities. And not only that, but you have teams on the rise in the division. I just talked about the Jets. The Dolphins made the playoffs last year. Even the Patriots, who might finish in last place, look better. How good are the Buffalo Bills going to be? Now, they're still the betting favorites to win the division, and rightly so. But how good is the chemistry in the locker room? Is Stephon Diggs ruining everything? We don't know that because the Bills have been the best division. Let, let's put it like this. Post-Tom Brady, the Buffalo Bills have owned the AFC East, and rightfully so. They've won it every single time. But they've had Super Bowl labels on them every single year. Look at what they did in 2020, the COVID year. They made it to the AFC Championship game, but then the Chiefs wiped the floor with them. The next year was uh, a wild game 
uh, between them and the Chiefs. And obviously everyone wants to go back to the clock and stuff like that. But look at the defense. You can't stop uh, Travis Kelsey, Patrick Mahomes, and that Chiefs Chiefs offense for 13 seconds, not put them in field goal range. Okay, and then look at next year. Joe Burrow and the Bengals in the snow at home in front of a wild crowd. They lose. So they've squandered their opportunities. Okay. The last few years were the time for Buffalo to win because let's face it, the Patriots post Tom Brady, the Jets, obviously, and then the Dolphins in their transition year were never going to contend for the division. Never, never, never. And they've squandered their opportunities to break through. Okay. So I don't know if that's on the quarterback. I don't know if that's on the coach, Sean McDermott. I don't know who it's on. I don't know. But the Bills window is, it's, the window was wide open. Now it's about halfway shut. And if they don't come through again, that thing is going to get to three quarters shut until eventually, boom, it's down. Stephon Diggs, being the, the way that he is, he might force a trade or basically just not want to be in Buffalo anymore. And then that's the end of that. That's how I see with Buffalo is do the ramifications from the end of the AFC championship game. Are they going to leak over into training camp? Does Josh Allen still trust Stephon Diggs? I know he'll outwardly say, yes, I do. But does Stephon Diggs trust Josh Allen and the rest of the Bills team? We don't know that. That's why they have training camp. And that's why they're open to the public and to the media and to fans so we can see how it unfolds. So that's all the off the field stuff without a season going on. But coming up, let's talk about who's playing right now. Let's talk about the MLB and the surprise new first place team in the AL East. We move to the MLB. What a shocker this is. In the AL East, where the Tampa Bay Rays have basically led the way since day one, they came crashing. And when I mean crashing, I mean they fell out of the sky and were going about 800 miles an hour and cratered into the earth. And now here come the upstart Baltimore Orioles, and the Orioles are in first place in the AL East. Let me say that again for the people in the back. The Baltimore Orioles are in first place as we hit the month of August in the AL East. Who on earth would have thought that, considering the franchise and the history that the Baltimore Orioles have in the last 30 years? I mean, it is the first time since 2016 that they've been this deep into first, this deep into the season being in first place. And I I think we saw it in this last weekend series when Baltimore took two out of three at Tropicana this week. This is why I was so skeptical on the Tampa Bay Rays and why I can't make them World Series contenders or I can't bank on them to win the World Series because they have giant collapses. Look at what Tampa did to start the year. They went 13-0, and which I believe tied the best mark uh, or the best start uh, to an MLB season in history. They cap that off. They keep things rolling. They're 30-9 and nine at one point. 
And since then, they have gone 31 and 33. Not even a 500 team, not even a slightly above 500 team. They're a sub 500 team after starting undefeated and being 21 games over 500. And now they still have a good record and they're still in the wild card spot. But one has to wonder how on earth did the Tampa Bay Rays, after maybe having the best start in history, fall behind so much? Well, one of the things is that they can't hit anymore, okay? All those guys who are blasting home runs and getting runs are not showing up post-All-Star break, okay? Post-All-Star break as a team, the Rays are only hitting for a batting average of 224, okay? They haven't scored more than six runs yet in a game since the break. So you're looking at guys like Rosarena, Franco, uh, Siri, Diaz, Lau and low, and they're not doing what they did before the all-star break. They're not what they were. And not only does that offense come down to earth, but they are, they're totally struggling. Okay. And this has been weeks in the making. Okay. Remember the uh, six or seven game winning streak that they had right before the all-star break. You're thinking, okay, good thing. They're here at the break. Then they can reset. What happens? They lose to the Rangers, okay? So this is a very scary proposition for Tampa Bay because their offense is not producing the way that it should be. Not at all, considering where they were, okay? This was arguably the best offense uh, in the league. But look what happens. They get swept by Texas. They lose five in a row. They drop three out of four to the Orioles at home where they had been almost unstoppable at home, okay? They had such a great start. They're still 36 and 18, but also on the road, they're 25 and 24. So it's it's the offense just does not want to show up. They don't want to show up. And not only that, but you have your supposed ace, Shane McClanahan, in his two starts, he's only gone 10 innings. He's given up seven earned runs and eight hits. That's not what you're looking for from your ace. Not only that, but the rest of the pitching is struggling too. Eflin, Taj Bradley, the entire bullpen, everyone on Tampa is not having a good post-All-Star break. Not at all. And it's not going to get any easier at all. This is the next couple of series for them. They get two at home versus Miami. They go to three against Houston, who is uh, always going to be contenders. You have three at the Yankees and possibly a returning Aaron Judge. Then you have three at Detroit as you're on the road. So it's not going to get any easier. And if Tampa's going to turn it around, they got to turn it around now. Because you look at the wild card standings, the Orioles at were comfortable uh, in that spot. And now the Rays, yes, they're four and a half up on uh, the next closest team, which are the Red Sox and the Yankees. But still, if you're in that first wild card, you got to have you have to think about who you're playing, okay? If you're the, the way the playoffs are right now, right now it would be the Rays, the Astros, and the Blue Jays in that wild card spot. Just looking at record-wise, the Rays would have to play, uh, just looking right here, sorry, the Orioles would have to play the Blue Jays. Then the second best record, the Rangers would have to play the Astros. And yes, you might be getting the Minnesota Twins uh, if you're Tampa, the Tampa Bay Rays would be getting the Minnesota Twins 
who are 53 and 48 and probably the worst division in baseball. But still, you don't want to go the wild card route. That's a two out of three. And look what happened when Tampa didn't have home field. They lost to the Guardians. So this is a very scary thought for Tampa Bay. Now that you've been overtaken by the Orioles, and maybe not necessarily the fact that they've been overtaken, but the fact, and I go back to how good of a start they had. You don't, if it would be incredibly disappointing if they have that incredible start and they fall back and they don't even win the division. Now, there's still plenty of time left, but still, I can't bank on it. I can't bank on the Rays all of a sudden turning things around and getting back to the top of the division. I can't do it. But the Orioles, I can look at them and say, hey, they're just a bunch of young kids with nothing to lose. So I look at them and I say, that's a fun team. I think because they're, in my opinion, I think they're exceeding expectations. You know, I expected them to be playoff contenders, not necessarily division leaders. But here they are. Here the Orioles are. And their offense has just been steady Eddie the entire way but it's been the pitching that's really come through. I think you have to credit their starting pitching and their closer. I mean, aside from their 10-3 loss to the Dodgers since the All-Star break, they haven't allowed more than five runs. And the closer, Felix Bautista, I mentioned it. Best closer in the game, and I'm going to stand by it. I mean, so far, post-All-Star break, he's gone seven innings, and he's got five saves in his six games that he's appeared in. He's only allowed three hits, and he struck out 12 during that time okay like I said this is an Orioles team who are young and spunky and have nothing to lose so the Orioles feel no pressure at all the Rays have tons of pressure and obviously they're not living up to that pressure because they continue to squander chance after chance after chance I mentioned the Rays all the opportunities they've had going to the World Series winning the division multiple times now they might be closer to the seller than they are to the top unless they don't get things done this week. And hey, we've seen teams go through the wild card and get to the World Series. But like I said last week, the Rays are a team that has to win a World Series. They don't have to get there. They have to win it because they've been there enough times and they have the experience and the talent. And plus, you got to keep in mind, they're not a big spending team, okay? They're not a team like the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Mets or the Padres who can turn things around just by spending money. They have to continue to develop guys. And sure enough, these guys who they develop, who start to become really good, guys like Rosarena and McClanahan might not want to continue to just make the playoffs. I think they might want to go chase the money or chase a championship. Are you going to do that in Tampa? The answer is neither. So the Rays have to do it now. Otherwise, they're just going to be right where they always have been for the history of their franchise, and that is at the bottom. But coming up next, as we shift gears, we go to soccer along with some other topics and talk about the hype around Lionel Messi and how he came through on his MLS debut. part of our show where we're just rattling off a bunch of topics and uh we call it sports per i shouldn't say sports pure uh, 
gosh, I can't even say it. Sports purry, like a potpourri. You know, thank you, Nick Fitzy Stevens, for implanting that in my brain. <laughs> uh, but basically, we go through a bunch of different topics that didn't make the first two and get their own. And obviously, I think, at least for me, over the past week or weekend or so, I think everyone has been talking about Lionel Messi and his MLS debut. I mean, let's let's put it at it like this. Not many guys have made the transition of being one of the top international players and in coming to the MLS. I mean, historically, in terms of men's soccer, America has not really been the place to, to break out or whatever. I mean, you got a guy, Christian Pulisic, who's on the U.S. men's national team, but he's spending his time over uh, across the pond playing in some European leagues. So the fact that Lionel Messi was able to get to the MLS and now he's on Inter-Miami FC, uh, I mean, props to that. I mean, this is much better, as I talked about uh, on Sunday uh, with John Lyons and Nick Fitzy Stevens, is that this is way different from David Beckham because Beckham only spent a few years uh, in America before really settling in and calling it a home. Uh, in terms of a soccer, from a soccer standpoint, he didn't really make that much of an impact. Lionel Messi, on the other hand, where you're talking in an age with social media where uh, everyone can see everything in a flash, you know, so they've seen Messi and what he's done for Barcelona uh, and all the Premier League, all of that, winning the World Cup. They know what he can do. And the hype, honestly, was pretty justified. I mean, when you are in a crowd, when you're playing in front of a crowd of LeBron James, Serena Williams, Kim Kardashian, just to name some well-known celebrities, and what does he do when he subs in? He wins and he scores the game winner in extra time for Inter-Miami FC. Now, granted, it was a friendly, it was an actual MLS competition, but the fact you can make that kind of debut, oh boy, I am very excited to see what Messi can do. I mean, I was very surprised at the when he got introduced in the stadium in a rainy night. Just the crowd was filled in that stadium just to see Messi hold up that number 10 in that uh, black and gold or whatever kind of color schemes they use. I mean, you can tell I follow soccer. <laughs> Just the fact of the hype that uh, Messi has brought, I mean, in that, in his first game, coming through after halftime and getting probably about 35, 40 minutes or so of playing time, and he can captivate an audience just like that, unreal. Absolutely unreal. And I'm I'm rooting for Messi to have uh, a good year. I'm really rooting for him uh, to play well in the MLS and really give uh, the MLS some exposure. Uh, but moving on, we go back to football. And obviously over the weekend, uh, we kind of knew that it was coming, but it is official that the commanders of the NFL have been sold and they're under new management. Josh Harris, a group, uh, involving Magic Johnson, the legendary Hall of Fame NBA player. They bought the team for $6.5 billion. And honestly, if you're asking me, it is about damn time that Dan Snyder, Dan Snyder, <laughs> Dan Snyder uh, he, I, it's about time he's gone. He has been just ruining that franchise ever since he bought the team. Uh, you know, I, I'll have to talk to uh, Megan Ottolini from Jones and Mega on EEI because she obviously grew up in the area. She grew up in Maryland. Um, so she probably has a, a better trace on things uh, than I do. But um, Magic Johnson did say 
along with some other things that they want to remove any traces of Dan Snyder talking about possibly changing the name once again, um, possibly moving uh, stadiums or whatever. You know, I'm just glad, you know, I, I do agree. I don't know if I would change the name. I don't know if I'd go from uh, the, the Redskins to the football team, to the commanders, and then back to a, a whole other team, whether that be back to the football team or a completely new uh team name or whatever i don't know if i would do that but i do agree with getting rid of any kind of trace of uh dan snyder now i don't know where it might be found whether it's in like you know some kind of management position or whatever i don't i don't know what traces there are of dan snyder but i do agree with magic that you want to work at trying to erase that kind of image or any kind of you know when you when you initially thought Washington Commanders, you thought Dan Snyder. I agree that you might want to work on trying to not make that happen. You know, talk about a competitive football team. Talk about legends like Joe Gibbs, uh, just to name a few. Uh, Joe Theismann, um, just to name a player. Um, so I do agree with that point. And honestly, I, hopefully Dan Snyder disappears off the face of the earth. You know, not 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 in that kind of way, but. He got fined $60 million, which honestly for a billionaire is not that much. Um, So he's probably, you know, hopefully he disappears. He goes to like Europe or whatever. He stays far away from the NFL as possible. And he doesn't have to be continuously in people's hair and make uh, really the owners. Cause I mean, you heard the comments um, after the investigation opened up, you had guys like Jim Ursay and Jerry Jones bringing out some comments um, you don't want that at all. You don't want owners, you know, you want them all on the same page. And I think not having Dan Snyder there will make things very, very, very good. Uh, but shifting now over to golf, obviously this past weekend was the British Open, as we call it here in America, but it's the Open Championship. It took place, place in uh, Royal Liverpool. And how about USA? Ryan Harmon heads overseas. And I don't, I wouldn't say he won the Open Championship, he dominated the Open Championship. He won by six strokes with a score of 13 under par. And ESPN tweeted out that he was the first American or U.S.-born golfer to win by at least six strokes since Tiger in 2000. And I always say, if you're in the same category as so-and-so, you know, in this case being uh, the PGA, if you're in the same category as Tiger Woods, that is a pretty good company to be a part of. But really you know, watching the course and you saw the weather over there in England just get worse, you know, and it, it was great on day one. And then, you know, you had less sun, the wind was picking up. Then it was an overcast day on Saturday. And then it was just a rainstorm on Sunday, an absolute rainstorm. And really Brian Harmon was the only guy who had four consistent good rounds. I mean, you had guys like John Rahm who shot, uh, I believe a 64, Five maybe or a 63 something like that John Rom had one good round Rory Rory McIlroy had one good round Tommy Fleetwood had one good round but Brian Harmon had four consecutive good rounds that got him all the way to 13 I forget how he ended day one but I think it was like four or five under par then he just slowly slowly got better and with the course as difficult as it is and the conditions as difficult as it is, 
I thought that first day was huge for Harmon. The fact that he could separate himself already on day one, then separate himself even more on day two. And all he had to do was totally not crap on himself. That's all he had to do is not totally collapse and go bogey, 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 bogey. He just had to play consistent. And that's what's going to win it. And sure enough, that's what he did. Now, that may be the only major that he gets. You know, normally when you see guys who win their first major, you're thinking, oh, there are more to come. Or uh, you see guys like John Rock. You know, it, it's happened in the past. You know, you see uh, Justin Thomas win a few. You see Brooks Kepka win a few. John Rahm wins one. And you're thinking, okay, they're on their way to win more. Honestly, I don't know if Harmon's on his way to win more because I hadn't heard of Brian Harmon until this tournament, uh, if you're asking me as a, a general golf fan, not a deep golf fan, but a general golf fan. I can tell you, I hadn't heard about Brian Harmon, but, you know, he's got his name on that trophy. No one can take that away, and that might be the only major he gets. And we're just going to wait until uh, the playoffs now uh, and the Ryder Cup just to see uh, how some golfers do. Uh, and then this last this last topic I wanted to talk about is a little, you know, it's a, it's a personal one for me, and it's the X Games. Um, this this one felt really good. I I grew up a big fan of action sports. You know, I was big into, you know, skateboarding and that kind of stuff. And I still am. Uh, but the six games was a little, uh, a little more, uh, it, it looked good and it felt good because they were back in California. Obviously, a lot of things shut down with the pandemic. If you didn't know, um, basically what the X Games did pandemic wise was in one year, they went to someone's backyard, uh, the late Pat Casey, uh, rest in peace for the uh, BMX rider. They went to a, a dirt bike rider's uh, sort of backyard, his freestyle course. Um, and then they went to like a skating complex, which was basically closed off. But now it returned to uh, California. It was in the, I want to say it was the Ventura uh, fairgrounds where they had basically everything together and it was opened up back to fans. And that, that was good to watch, you know, to see the crowd, uh, hear that crowd noise definitely was good. I mean, really, you know, I, I speak, I think I speak for all the sports and everyone saying that sports is just not the same without fans. They re they really aren't. So uh, I was very happy to see fans back. And then the competition level was just, oh my goodness. I mean, you can go back on YouTube and watch these, uh, watch these contests. But uh, in Moto X Best Trick, you had a guy, David Ronaldo, doing a full-fledged body burial. That's when uh, you basically pull yourself off the bike and then spin around while you're basically in a Superman position. Uh, was absolutely insane. Uh, you got guys on dirt bikes doing front flips. You have a, a BMX rider, Ryan Williams, who does a nothing front bike flip where he flips the bike on his own while front flipping in the air. I mean, oh my goodness. And then obviously the progression for women. I mean, the skateboarding street and the skateboard park, skateboard vert for women, you know, it's it's a new era. It is a new era for women. You know, you look at it, Throughout all other sports, you got the women's national soccer team uh, getting finally getting their equal pay. You have more exposure for the WNBA. And, you know, the same thing here for action sports. The progression from women has been unreal to watch. I mean, you've got children. You got women. Uh, you got girls, basically, um, who are competing. And it, it, it's, it was just great to see all in all just to see X Games uh, back sort of on a big stage in front of fans. I, I thought it was absolutely, you know, so much fun to watch. And obviously me being an action sports fan, uh, I, I was very, very happy to see 
uh, how, how the X Games was able to return to California and put on a great show, really, if you're asking me. They put on a great show. So those are the, the little topics that I wanted to throw out there and really get a good discussion on. Uh, but coming up, it's Let's Get Local, and there's not much to talk about, but of course we have to talk about the Patriots getting their training camp started and the Red Sox, again, making people wonder, do they make a trade or not? This is our city. So up next, for all you Boston fans out there, it's the segment we always do, our Let's Get Local segment of the week. And again, quiet time, but of course, everyone was wondering, wait, the Patriots have so much controversy. How come they're not one of the headlines or the teams to watch when NFL training camps get underway? Oh, don't worry. There's a lot to look forward to. Um, really there, there's two big things for the Patriots that I want to see, cause we can get like deep into positional groups and that kind of stuff, but there's two things that I'm watching for when training camp begins on Wednesday. The first thing I want to see is the offense. That's what I want to do because everyone said, uh, during mini camp, uh, a couple, uh, a month ago is that. Things look re-energized, and it's kind of like a new – everyone gets a fresh start, as Bill O'Brien said. But how does the offense flow under Bill O'Brien? Because now you have a guy who knows what he's doing offensively, unlike Matt Patricia. Bill O'Brien is a well-known and honestly, I'd say maybe not well-respected, but he's definitely someone when you look at offense. That's one of the top guys that you are looking for. So I want to see how the offense does. I think the communication between Bill O'Brien and Mac Jones is going to be really good. I think Mac Jones is going to be uh, inspired to have finally, you know, similar to Josh McDaniels. He's got a guy who knows what he's doing on offense. And it was almost like, you know, when he, uh, not not necessarily the outburst that he had last year, you know, when you, when you see him uh, on the sideline of the Bills game saying, you know, the, the quick game, dang sucks or during the uh, Vikings game, or I think it was the Cardinals or something like that, where he's waving away Matt Patricia or something like that. I think he's going to be excited. And I think he is a guy, you know, what's the knack on Mac Jones is that off the field and his preparation, that kind of stuff will get him. That that is, is one of his best traits. And it's that, that I think is going to re-energize him. I I really do think it's going to re-energize him. And I think he's going to have a good year. I'm not going to say that he's the make or break for the Patriots, but I think he's going to have a, a good year. I think he's going to bounce back uh, because he's going to be excited to work under Bill O'Brien, a guy who knows offense. Then you look at the rest of the offense. I think Ramondre Stevenson is due to have a good year. I do think, you know, he's got to build up his stamina. He really does because pretty much he was forced into a bulk role last year because Damian Harris was injured most of the year. And now Damian Harris is off in Buffalo Um, running back. You can't rely on Kevin Harris or Pierre strong uh, to sort of take that Damian Harris or whatever role they were having to sort of balance it out. I think Ramondre really has to basically train himself and get his conditioning going, which, you know, he, he has said himself that he's working on his conditioning and that kind of stuff because he's going to have that big role. 
Uh, Stevenson is really the only running back, I would say, that the Patriots have that you can really put a lot of faith in. So there's that part of it. The receivers also, I mean, this isn't a bad receiver group. I think they're not the worst receiver group in the league. But because you didn't get DeAndre Hopkins, that means you are really relying on guys like Juju Smith-Schuster, Kendrick Bourne, who's also another guy to be excited about, uh, Devontae Parker, who you just extended, Tyquan Thornton, all those guys you're hoping can thrive under Bill O'Brien's watch. So it's really going to come down to how well do these players perform under Billy O. And then obviously there's talks about maybe bringing the two tight end formation back when you have Hunter Henry and Mike Gesicki. I, you know, Bill O'Brien did thrive under that. You know, that was his go-to. He introduced it when he had Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez. And basically, Bill Belichick was able to roll with that once O'Brien took the job in Houston and then eventually went on to a bunch of different places. Um, So, really, it's the offense. How do they perform under Bill O'Brien? You know, I'm not going to say, because obviously, offensive line is is another issue right there. That's not a a Bill O'Brien kind of thing. You know, we'll let Adrian Clem, who's the offensive line coach, we'll deal with that. But I'm looking at the personnel, the quarterbacks, the running backs, the receivers, the tight ends. How do they thrive in Bill O'Brien's offense? Because I think Bill O'Brien can bring that creative uh, flow in terms of play calls. And he's going to know, you know, what what to do on third down instead of just, you know, hunting away the ball like Matt Patricia would do on third and five or third and sixes you know, uh, that kind of stuff. So that's that's the first thing I want to see from Patriots training camp. The second thing that I'm fascinated with with their training camp is Bill Belichick himself. I, I really want to, you know, if, if I were a reporter and I was going down to Foxborough, uh, which I'm kind of envious of Andy Hart and Mike Cadlick and everyone who writes for EEI, but I am very curious on Bill Belichick's comments. I really... Because basically, this has been maybe the most polarizing offseason that he's had in quite a bit of time. Because basically, everything that's happened has not gone his way, okay? Recently, he doesn't sign DeAndre Hopkins, even though Hopkins indicates he would like to play. And the money being an issue. You know, all this stuff we're hearing about Hopkins uh, signing with Tennessee rather than New England. Then you have the reported tension with Robert Kraft. You know, he he has the the famous quote we're 27th in cash spending Robert Kraft saying uh my football team those kinds of comments I mean I could, I could do a whole two hours on the po- uh the offseason comments from Robert Kraft at the owners meeting Bill Belichick's comments that kind of stuff and then obviously Belichick's decision as a general manager you know letting go of Jacoby Myers bringing in Juju Smith-Schuster who a lot of people agree uh agree that they're almost on the same parallel with maybe Smith-Schuster being just slightly better talent-wise. I'm very curious to see how Bill Belichick responds to that kind of stuff because all these reports came out, um, and they don't put him in a good light. You know, there's a lot of people saying that Belichick's just doing this stuff, and he's bringing along a lot of yes-men. I'm very curious, and we we know how Belichick is with the media. He's just going to you know, turn it away, you know, let's talk about the people who are on the team now, you know, that kind of stuff. He's going to do that kind of stuff. But I really want to see, because there are going to be guys like Tommy Curran or Phil Perry, they're going to lean into him. They're really going to lean into him and be, why did you decide to not bring in Hopkins? Was it you who made the decision to not increase 
by $2 million to possibly tip them uh, on the scale. He's going to, he's going to face that kind of criticism. And if he's going to continue to be, you know, sort of stuck in his own ways, then it's going to put fans really at unease because you're starting, you know, I, I think the Hopkins not signing D hop is kind of a tipping point. You know, I've taken a lot of calls uh, while working shows for EEI. And a lot of people have been saying, yeah, I'm just kind of done with Belichick. You know, a lot of people, um, a lot of fans who have called in, you know, a, a lot of them are saying that, you know, I'm kind of just done with them. I'm done with sort of the smug, the arrogance, um, and the decision-making as a general manager, you know, that kind of stuff. So they would like to move on. And honestly, you know, John Lyons said the magical number was seven. I got to get back to you on that because I don't know it, it, if they miss the playoffs. I think Kraft's just going to get that much more irritated um, because the division got that much better, you know. But that's next offseason. This season, I, I really want to see how because in game, I think because he's got Bill O'Brien on his offensive side, he's got Gerard Mayo on the defensive side. I think because he has that, he can lessen himself. You know, what was the story? Uh, last season when he brought along Matt Patricia and Joe Judge, you know, he was working more with the offense. Yeah, because those two guys don't know what they're doing and they still don't know what they're doing, even though Joe Judge is apparently an assistant head coach and Matt Patricia is a defensive guy with the Eagles right now. He was taking on so much more and now he can take a step back and do what he did that helped him win Super Bowls. Not saying it was all Tom Brady, but Belichick's coaching style helped win six Super Bowls. And now he can take, he can go back into that role rather than what he did a year ago and apparently take more on. And he can be the coach that everyone knows is a Hall of Famer and one of uh, the best of all time. So that's what I'm seeing with the Patriots. I'm, and I'm sure we'll get more into it as training camp really gets underway. It'll be almost a week long by the next episode that we have. But Moving from the Patriots to the Red Sox. Um, honestly, I got to tell you, not much has changed. I mean, it, it's still a frustrating time to be a Red Sox fan because, I mean, you're happy that they won the Mets series. You're happy that they won two out of three. But then they lose two out of three to the Oakland Athletics, the worst team in baseball, and arguably maybe the worst team historically in baseball. So, you know, the, the headline last week, is the headline this week, and it probably will be for the next week. It's so hard to diagnose if to buy into this team. It's so hard to figure out, do I buy into this team or do I sell them off, okay? Because when things go so well, they turn the corner and look like a bottom-feeding team when they're losing two out of three to Oakland. But then they look really good when they're playing to the Mets. And honestly, I should say, um, you know, I saw last night's game up from the booth, uh, right in between Joe Castiglione and Will Fleming, and we were all in agreement that even though they won, it did not look pretty. I mean, base running mistakes. I mean, you got Duran uh, being thrown out at home. You got Devers being thrown out at third base. Um, you have Chris Martin, who came in in the eighth, tried to throw to second, but no one was there. So really, um, this team will show how good they can be, but they can also show how terrible they can be. And I think the potential is too good to do any kind of selling. 
And I, I do think that this team will get better. I mean, we saw that John Schreiber is going to be activated before the Brave series gets underway. So he's going to be back. Trevor Story will be back eventually. Garrett Whitlock will return, and Tanner Houck will return. And I think that they will help, but you can't do that same thing that you did last year where basically your trade return is Chris Sale or your trade return is a guy coming back from injury. You can't do that. You have to make some kind of move. And if the trade deadline were tomorrow or if it were tonight at midnight, if I was high in bloom, I'd be making a move. And I wouldn't be selling off. I, I wouldn't be selling off a bunch of pieces. I mean, I would hate to see Kike Hernandez gone just because he, he looks like a locker room guy who can keep things loose and fun. And obviously, he's got his friendship with Justin Turner. But honestly, if you do have Trevor Story coming back and there's basically no place for him. I mean, Jaron Duran's resurgence has gotten him more playing time in center field or should get him more playing time in center field. You can't put him in the infield because defensively he sucks. He sucks at shortstop and he doesn't suck as bad at second base. And then obviously you have Verdugo in right field. Uh, you're moving things around with Yoshida and Ref Snyder and stuff like that. So there's just not a place for him. Same thing with Adam Duvall. You know, Jaron Duran's uh, resurgence has kind of put him behind the eight ball. So there's a lot of guys where there's just not a place. Um, if you're asking me, obviously the target is starting pitching, but I'm not, you know, too keen on getting rid of James Paxson. I think, you know, considering where the roster is at, basically because Whitlock and Hauk and Sale are injured, the Red Sox are having to play two bull bullpen games. They did one last night and they have to do one another night. You know, luckily you have a guy like Cutter Crawford who can step in, but really your starting rotation as of right now is Brian Bayo, James Paxton, and Cutter Crawford. You got to do two bullpen games. And, you know, we saw the Rays in 2020 get through with having one bullpen game every five days or every five games. Um, but you can't do two. You absolutely can't do two. You need to have uh, four, at least four quality starting pitchers. So that's why I would hold on to James Paxton because really you can't rely like I said, you can't rely on Chris Sale being good when he comes back from injury. You can't rely on Garrett Whitlock. can't rely on Tanner Howe, you know, being back to what they were. So you have to keep that flexibility. And honestly, I'm not, you know, I wouldn't have a problem with Cutter Crawford going back to the bullpen. So really, essentially, you're starting five in no particular order um, for the rest of the year when everyone is fully healthy would be Brian Bale, James Paxton, um, Tanner Houck, Chris Sale and Garrett Whitlock. And maybe you flip uh you flip-flop him with uh uh Cutter Crawford or maybe some other guys like Nick Pavetta, who's been pitching great out of the bullpen in these bulk roles. Um that that's really what I'm seeing with the Red Sox. So all in all, as of right now, unless some things drastically change, starting pitching should be the target. Because I think the lineup is really good. When you list when you list the starting nine, um, you have Jaron Duran. In center, you have uh, Masataka Yoshida in left, sometimes DH. You have Justin Turner, sometimes DH, sometimes first, sometimes second base even. Tristan Casas has played really well. I mean, how about the game he had hitting two home runs off of Max Scherzer? Woo! You got to give him some more reps. Um, you have Devers, obviously, Rafi Devers. You've got Verdugo out and right. You've got Connor Wong, who's surprisingly been very well as a catcher, when you get him back, Trevor Story will be your DH. 
And then you have Christian Arroyo at second base. That's a good lineup. That's a good lineup. It's not a great lineup. You won't call it the best in baseball, but that's a lineup that can win you some games. Obviously, you're not going to see Trevor Story hit home runs every single time like he did in Portland in A when he comes back, but that's a good lineup. So I think Heim Bloom, which what we've heard from Jim Bowden, is that he's going after starting pitching, and I do think that he should. That's what they should do. And I think regardless of what happens, regardless of what happens um, over the next couple of series, because they've got the Braves, and then they go back out on the West Coast uh, with the Giants and the, uh, I forget that last, Seattle. They go to Seattle again. I think regardless of what happens, I think this is a team that has to be competitive and they have to do some kind of buying. They've got to make some kind of improvement. And I hope it's for a quality starting pitcher because you can't just stand pat or do more selling than buying if you're two games back of the wild card. So that's how I see it with the Red Sox. That's how I see it with the Patriots. Maybe some things change in the next week once we get deeper into training camp and we get closer to the trade deadline. But coming up next, as we always do, we get the funnies out and look at our LOL moment of the week. Let's send the show on a lighter note. It is time for our LOL moment of the week. And this one, we are going to Formula One racing. Yeah, (laughs) you're looking at someone who knows absolutely nothing about Formula One racing. Yes, I know more about skateboarding than I do about Formula One racing. (laughs) But I do know one name from Formula One, and that is Max Verstappen. Basically, one of the basically the best Formula One driver right now. He wins another Grand Prix. He won the Hungarian Grand Prix. Um, But this is a win he may not want to remember. Take a look at this video of the podium celebration and watch Lando Norris. Um, He goes a little bit crazy trying to celebrate opening a champagne bottle. And what does he do? The trophy falls. The trophy falls off the first place stand, completely breaks. And now Max Verstappen has nothing to show from the Hungarian Grand Prix than a busted up trophy. Now, I will say the video makes it pretty funny. I mean, Lando is obviously like, oh, my goodness, what did I do? And Verstappen, you know, luckily he's on the lighter side of things. And, you know, he makes it happy because he's got about eight billion of those trophies. Um, So it's no problem for Verstappen. But I'm looking at that video itself. And it, it is a giant champagne bottle. And obviously things are different. But the fact that he goes to the first place podium and he bangs it off to get that thing going. I mean, there are plenty of other ways to get that thing going. I mean, maybe he thought it was just like pure steel that he can just bounce it off, but no, that was a little that was a little bit of a flimsy podium and sure enough that trophy just bounced and fell right over and he he couldn't stop, obviously. <laughs> this champagne was going, it was slowing, but he still was looking down so he was like, "Oh no," while he was spraying it everywhere in celebration. And like I said, there's plenty of other ways to break open a bottle of champagne. I understand that one's a little bit bigger. But, I mean, you take off the wrapping, you shake it up, most guys do, instead of just bouncing it. Maybe, like, he was falling behind, being like, oh, the first and second place guy, they're already doing it. Uh, I got to do it really quick. So he he does that just to really get it going. 
I don't know what Lando Norris was thinking, but he's winning this award this week because I'm not going to say it's sabotage, obviously, because it's just a trophy. It's not like, you know, we intentionally crashed or uh, put Verstappen into the wall intentionally. It's not any of that. Um, but the fact that he decides to go, why couldn't he do it on his own podium? He finished in third. Why couldn't he have bounced it off of that one instead of the first one? I mean, is it because just it's raised a little higher? I mean, I bet you if that trophy was on like the third place one or whatever, you know, he would do it off there. And I don't know if the trophy would have bounced, um, from that spot. I don't know if he would have done that. Um, but I, that, that's my decision. So many questions for Lando Norris. Norris, I don't know what you were thinking with uh, your decision to open up that champagne bottle, but you've lent yourself into this week's LOL moment of the week for in breaking Max Verstappen's first place trophy from his Formula One win. And just like that, it's a wrap for episode 83 of let me speak thank you everyone for tuning in if you're listening to us on spotify apple Podcasts, or if you're watching us on youtube anywhere you're getting your podcast thanks for watching make sure you're following our social media pages we've got pages on instagram and on facebook all you got to do is search let me speak podcast signing off from swamp scott mass you have been listening to let me speak later <laughs>